Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. The future of New York City has been left for dead a number of times now in the last 50 years. During the fiscal crisis of the 70s, the crime waves of the 80s, after 9-11 in 2001, and the financial crisis of 2008. And then came the pandemic of the 2020s and a theory from a Columbia University business school professor who's about to be our guest with a theory he framed as the urban doom loop. Urban doom loop. You've probably heard that by now. Other cities have been caught in such loops before, with decline of one sort or another, followed by many people leaving, which depleted the tax base, which hurt city services, which caused more people and businesses to leave, and new people and businesses not to come, an urban doom loop. This one, the theory goes, would be caused by remote work becoming permanent for many people, hurting small businesses near the half-empty office towers, and maybe a commercial real estate crash that could bring down local banks even and further send the city into a doom loop of decline. But more recently, Dr. Doom Loop, if I can call him that, has been singing a more optimistic tune. Not totally, but a couple of years now after he coined the term, things are looking less doomy, even if still kind of loopy, and with even the possibility that the pandemic economy and its long tail could offer the city city new opportunities for growth and renewal. So let's hear his take at whatever level of complexity he sees at this point in 2024. Maybe some of you saw him on 60 Minutes last weekend, too. My guest is Columbia Business School Professor of Finance and Real Estate, Stan Van Nieuwerberg. Professor Van Nieuwerberg, thanks for coming on with us. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be with you. First, how well or badly did I lay out the basic urban doom loop theory? Would you like to add or correct anything there to start out? No, it was excellent. You did a great job. Okay, good. Um, Are there some classic urban doom loop cases that you would cite as cautionary tales, cities in the industrial Midwest or upstate New York or anywhere? Yeah, those are all good examples. Uh, you know, Detroit comes to mind, also New York City in the 1970s, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, more generally, you know, cities go through these large transformations, for example, you know, with deindustrialization in the 1950s and 1960s, that took 20 years for the city to recover from that. And then we had 20 or 30 years of a positive spiral where, interestingly, offices were the solution to our problem. Right. But there are cities that have not come back like New York has kept coming back, that I wonder if if they are sort of better examples of the urban doom loop where it really winds up in a longer-term doom. Right, absolutely. I think sort of some of the cities in the, in the Rust Belt come to mind, upstate New York, as you mentioned, right? Uh, you know, they're, in some sense, the industrial base left, and, and, and those cities never fully recovered. But even in those type of places, you know, there are exceptions. You know, Pittsburgh comes to mind that sort of reinvented itself on the back of you know, medical device industry and pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry. So, you know, I think a lot depends on how policymakers respond to these to these shocks. 
Right. And we'll get to some policy options. But I think one of the things right off the bat that New York has going for it that some of those other cities didn't that were really company towns for the one big company or industry that was there uh, is that New York's economy is so diversified with a bunch of different major sectors. I mean, we're the number two tech hub behind Silicon Valley. Uh, I think you agree with that, that ranking, plus, you know, the finance sector, advertising and media, um, education. It, it's, there are big, big sectors of New York's economy that insulate it to some degree uh, more than, let's say, a Rust Belt city that was a, a company town. That's absolutely right. And I think the, the other thing we have going for ourselves in New York is the fact that um, you know, a lot of young people want to be here, you know, in part for jobs, but in part because it's a really fun city to live in. Right. And and sort of those amenities, these downtown amenities, uh, you know, the whole cultural sector that we have, that's also something quite special. If you compare that with some, you know, traditional central business districts that are very heavily office focused and they're that are deserted at night, you know, that's sort of very different from the way Midtown and downtown Manhattan uh, look and feel. Yeah, which is one of the things that the city did that I know you've pointed to after 9-11 that surprised me at the time, but it turned out to be so successful. Just when you'd think that people didn't want to be there, you know, in the shadow of the World Trade Center death and destruction, um, the city invested a lot of money in building residential uh, spaces, right? And having people want to move there and live there. And that was one of the central keys to the revival of Lower Manhattan after 9-11, yes? Yes. I mean, actually, it started a little bit earlier. Um, you know, all of this sort of came out of the, the, the commercial real estate recession of the 1980s, the late 1980s, uh, sort of in, that sort of led into the recession of 1990, 1991. And, you know, sort of starting in 1995, the city put on this this program called 421G, which was essentially a tax subsidy for the conversion of office buildings into residential. <clears throat> and over the next, uh, you know, all the way through 9-11, but all the way until 2006, um, you know, there were about 13,000 new apartments built under this program. So yes, you're right. This really sort of revitalized downtown and, and turned it from a purely office into a, into a much more mixed office and residential neighborhood. So getting back to the doom loop scenario for New York today, post-pandemic, you know, emergency period uh, into now, it, it seems to me there are two different doom loop stories that I hear a lot. The effect on delis and restaurants and other small businesses in the business district with fewer people working in the nearby office buildings each day to patronize them, that's bad for those businesses, obviously. But the other one, maybe much more threatening, is about the value of the office buildings themselves with the mortgages that the real estate developers have on those buildings. Is it right to separate those two tracks? And if so, can you describe each in a little more detail? Yeah, I think that's right. So there's sort of uh, the, the repercussions of the decline of office values for tax revenues for cities, right? So that's what, what I've called the urban doom loop, where you know when, when the values of these buildings go down over time, the taxes collected from these commercial properties will go down as well. And for example, in New York City, about 15% of our tax revenue comes from these commercial properties. So if those values, if those buildings lose, let's call it 40 to 50% in value in the long run, then over time, those tax revenues will also go down 
40 or 50 percent. So that's, you know, that's about six billion dollars or seven billion dollars per year in tax revenue uh, that we might be missing out on. And because the city needs to balance its budget, it's going to need to either right. raise taxes on on other th- items or it's going to need to cut spending. Right. But and the annual spending. the annual city budget is about one hundred and ten billion dollars. Right. If you're talking about six or seven billion dollars out of that, that's not nice, but it doesn't sound ruinous. True. I mean, again, seven a seven percent deficit is is a non-trivial deficit to make up, right? You have to remember yes. a lot of our expenses are locked in. You know, a lot of those are wages that are pre-committed, right? So it's never easy to trim six or seven percent of uh, of costs. In fact, the city has made some cuts that have been already pretty painful, and that's just the very beginning. You know, another way to put that seven billion dollar number in context—that's sort of roughly the cost of the entire migrant crisis that that we have. So again, yes. non-trivial. Um, but maybe not ruinous, right? But I think it's sort of the, it's in some sense the starting point because if the result of that is cuts to government services and that makes people leave, then, you know, when there's fewer people here, obviously that, you know, the values of these buildings are going to decline further, but we're also going to be missing out on some tax, on some sales tax revenue, on some income right. tax revenue. So that's sort of what sets off that's that, the that, that doom loop cycle, yeah. right? So that's, that's point number one. And then the second cycle, as you pointed out, has to do with, with sort of the financial uh, spillovers of, of these declines in office values, because offices are, uh, offer mortgages against these offices are important uh, assets on banks' balance sheets, especially the more local, regional banks, which, you know, got in, in some trouble earlier in 2023, right? And so basically, we've arrived at this situation where the values of these buildings are down, uh, the uh, cash flows on these buildings are down and interest rates have roughly doubled, right? So now you have all these office owners that have to refinance their mortgage and essentially they can't because yeah. of these of these reasons. And so now banks might, and, and so the, some of these office owners might decide to send the keys back uh, to the banks. And then, you know, banks obviously don't want to be sitting on these half empty office buildings and that might lead to fire sales and to further declines on prices and so forth. And, in a sort of worst case scenario, I'm thinking of the 2008 financial crisis, which was essentially a mortgage crisis. So many bad mortgage loans and the way banks felt immune from any risk for those loans. So when the economy changed and many Americans couldn't make their mortgage payments, um, it's not only that the individuals lost their homes, banks started going out of business. And that helped cause the period known as the Great Recession. And again, correct my description of that scenario if I'm mischaracterizing it, but also is something like that at risk of happening to the banking system here in New York if building owners start walking away from their buildings and defaulting on their mortgages in the way you were just describing? You know, I would say in general, yes, but there's sort of a couple of buts. One is that the commercial real estate sector is not as big as the residential real estate sector, right? So instead of $20 trillion in residential real estate mortgage debt, we have about Six trillion in commercial real estate debt, so it's a bit smaller. The problem is a bit more contained. For our, for our largest, most systemically risky banks, commercial real estate loans are an even smaller fraction. Hmm. So that's sort of the good news. Um, now it's sort of these medium-sized banks that are most exposed. For them, commercial real estate could be a much larger share of their of their lending, 30, 40, sometimes even more. Right. So, do I think we might have some medium-sized banks fail in the next couple of years? I do. Uh, you know, some of that is 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 in some sense um, something we can deal with, right? We, you know, in the 1980s, we had 700 
thrift institutions fail over the commercial real estate banking crisis. Could we have a few hundred banks fail this time around? I think we could. Um, now, is that necessarily catastrophic for the overall banking system? No, it's not, because you know, as long as these banks are not systemically risky, they're small enough, we could deal with that. Sort of, you know, I think there are darker scenarios where if that were to happen, people panic and they start to withdraw their deposits from the banks and you have another run on the banks. You know, that's sort of a, you know, a more a, a darker scenario where this could spill over. Right. Another risk is that if the economy starts doing worse in the next several years, this problem gets gets sort of worse as well. But if the economy sort of keeps holding up as well as it has, uh, I think this problem might be containable. Yeah. But it sounds like people may want to take this opportunity to remind themselves that FDIC insurance for money that you have in in those insured sort of regular banks is good up to $250,000 before you keep any more money than that in there for people who have that much money. Yes? Absolutely. Very important to remember. Um, so listeners, everything you always wanted to ask or say about urban doom loop theory and why it might or might not apply to New York City in the post-pandemic emergency period, but you never had Dr. Stan Van Nieuwerberg from Columbia's Business School who co coined the term urban doom loop over for dinner to ask, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, call or text. So we've been describing the urban doom loop scenario that you had originally, but you've been in the news lately for being more optimistic. Some of you may have heard your interview with Arun Venegapal on the station or read the Gothamist version, but I see as early as last February, almost a full year ago now, you were quoted in the New York Times saying New York City could improve its outlook greatly with the right policies. And um, you cited that example that I touched on before of post 9-11, the city spending a lot on housing in lower Manhattan to great effect. What do you see as potentially productive policies now? Right. So I think there's sort of uh, three prongs uh, here, right? One is we need to, I mean, it's sort of at, at its core, we have too much office. You know, my view is that remote work is here to stay. Uh, our office sector is built for a world pre-remote work. So there's essentially too much uh, office space. We could argue whether we have 100 million square feet too much or 30 million or 300 million. I think we can sort of discuss that. But the, at, the, at the core, we need to repurpose some of that office, right? So some of it, uh, is converting that office into residential. We have a housing crisis at the same time, too little housing, certainly too little affordable housing. And, you know, we've done some research that suggests that in New York City, something like 25% of buildings are potentially convertible from offices to, to residential. It's not easy. It's not cheap. Uh, there's regulatory changes that are necessary, right? So, what are the policies that that that, that could be that should be um, you know pursued here? Well, one part is rezoning part of Midtown for residential, where residential is currently not allowed. Another part is to make sure that there is as of right conversion to residential use for office buildings that are built before 1990. Right now, that's not the case. Office buildings have to be much older than that to be allowed to be allowed to convert. Uh, a third plan would be to allow for more different types of housing. You know, think of co-living spaces. You know, we used to call these single-room occupancy uh, way way back when, um, but I think there's sort of a modern version of that that would make for a great use of of some of our office space. 
And then the truth is some of these conversions are, are, are basically sort of not going to happen without some, uh, some policy, right? Some, some, some property tax abatements, for example. So something like that 421G program uh, that we had downtown in the late 1990s that we were discussing earlier uh, would, be, would be really important to have uh, going forward. Rodwan, you know oh, go ahead. Do you want to finish your thought before I take a call? You can. One last thing I would say is sort of make sure that sort of the city apparatus works well and that mid-level government workers are really empowered to sort of make those approvals so that the process, the actual approval process can be streamlined. Rodwan in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi, Brian. Hi. Good morning. Uh, so, yeah, from my own experience, I'm a restaurant owner. I, I, had, I opened a, a restaurant in 2003. And then, I, uh, like you said, the city keeps evolving, and this is the, the great things about New York City. That's why it keeps surviving. And people have to understand that and adapt. And I adapted myself because I went from a sit-down restaurant with a bar to a takeout restaurant and uh, because the behavior of the consumer has also changed. In the past, people used to go to a restaurant for an entertainment, for two hours of entertainment. And they didn't have the iPhones. They didn't have these nice TVs and all these unlimited shows, HBO Max, etc. You know, mm-hmm. Netflix. Yeah. Now the entertainment moved from the ha- from the restaurant to the house or to the apartment, and they are happy just ordering food. That, of course, has uh, effect on the brick and mortars with uh, the big staff. That now they're not doing much inside the restaurant. And more to you know takeout. Business. So you converted and more so, to a takeout business. I did, and I still have another restaurant with. But I see the same thing. Uh, not only this; this is just one of the many reasons. Also, I noticed many big companies. Many companies now they're refusing to deliver to Manhattan, right? And they say, no, I don't need to waste time in the traffic. I get tickets. Uh, we lost uh, lanes to buses and we lost lanes to bicycles. So they really don't want to come to Manhattan. That alone also adds to the cost of businesses because now you're only stuck with big companies like Cisco, etc. And those prices are very high. So there's so much going on that, For that trucking. are driving yeah. businesses out of New York City, from, especially from Manhattan. Really, really interesting, Radwan. I'm, I'm going to leave it there to get some other folks on. Uh, but a lot of insight from a restaurant owner there. Yes, Professor? I agree. I mean, businesses have to keep adapting to, to sort of the new environment. Do, does to some of what he was saying, does the remote work economy even itself out in a certain respect? Like if people aren't spending money at delis and restaurants near their office buildings as much, are they spending it at delis and restaurants near where they live? And maybe that way there are even more businesses doing well. They're just more dispersed geographically around the city and around the region rather than concentrated, you know, in Manhattan below 60th Street. That's right. That's exactly what we see. We see sort of retail moving to where the people are, right? So give you one example, Chipotle opened hundreds of suburban locations in the last couple of years, just huh. sort of following where the people went. Chipotle, yeah. Um, and Kathy Wild, who represents major businesses in New York City, was quoted in that Times article last February that you were also quoted in, saying, historically, blight precedes resurgence in New York City. I was interested in that turn of phrase. 
blight precedes resurgence in New York City. So if Midtown is suffering, or let's say if real estate values are suffering, um, could it be that a bit of real estate crash is exactly what the city needs to bring down rents and home selling prices to make the city affordable again for the next generation of creatives and immigrants seeking opportunity who historically have moved here and kept making New York a cultural and business hub? Well, it's certainly the case that lower office values would open up all sorts of alternative use for those properties, right? So, you know, at $1,000 per square foot, it's really hard to imagine doing anything else but charge a lot of office rent for these buildings. But at $200 per foot, there's lots of other things you could do with these buildings, potentially. So I certainly believe in that creative uh, destruction aspect of this of this crisis now so far rents haven't fallen at all in fact rents have been rising throughout apartment rents have been rising throughout this period right so housing has certainly not crashed uh, uh, in in Manhattan so far so there hasn't been little little relief uh, but I do think that if we were to convert a substantial share of these offices to residential you know more supply would help to sort of put a lid on uh, on these rent increases that we've experienced. As a professor of real estate, how do you explain the fact that rents have kept rising even as presumably there's less demand to live close to the central business district? Well, part of it is that um, there is more demand. In the pandemic, everybody wanted more space. Right. So people wanted a home office. People didn't want to double up for health reasons and so forth. So we had this major increase in, in the demand for space per person. Uh-huh. And and that has pushed up, you know, prices and rents, right? So that is, I think, the first, the most important factor at play here over this last few periods. Uh, you know, the other thing is that a lot of young people did come back to the city in 2021 and 2022. So there has been sort of strong demand, especially for smaller, for smaller units. I think sort of the uh, at the higher end of the market and, and and sort of the family size apartments, that segment of the residential market has struggled uh, in the last in the last year or so. Yeah, the generational aspect of this is is really important, right? I mean, as I move around Manhattan and when I'm, you know, in the business district and um, places like that, the it seems to me young New York is here and no, young New York is going out and doing things. Um, young New York is regenerating the city in a way that uh, defies the urban doom loop scenario to some degree, and it's much more older generations who are retreating. True. I mean, you know, we have to remember, you know, New York City has always been a city of young people. There have always been sort of as long over the last several decades, we've always had young people moving in and older people moving out. That has always been the case, yeah. right? So here's a, re- a remarkable statistic for you. You could, you know, look at the people that were here 20 years ago and ask, you know, how many of these people are still here? And the answer is about 10%. So about 10% <laughs> wow. of people who moved here 20 years ago are still here. So this, it's always been the case. Now, what happened in the pandemic is that more people moved out, more of that 30 to 40-year-old crowd moved out and didn't come back. You know, we still had a lot of young people moving in. We still have a lot of young people moving in today. So the other point to make is that those people, on average, you know, make less money, pay less taxes, you know, have, you know, smaller, smaller apartment buildings. So sort of for the overall economic well-being of the city, we need those, you know, slightly older middle class households to pay their taxes, right? New York is like this huge um, 
vacuum cleaner and centrifuge contraption, right? It sucks people in and then it spits people out. Absolutely. Um, but over decades. Mike on Staten Island, you're on WNYC. Hi, Mike. Yes, good morning, Brian. Good morning, Professor. Uh, a concern I have uh, regarding the city and uh, property values and so forth is uh, the effect of climate change, specifically on insurers, property insurers. Uh, down in, uh, in uh, uh, Louisiana, Texas, Florida, and big chunks of California, the property insurance market is abandoning those markets. And this may be the first sign that America's property insurance market is beginning to collapse. And if insurers stop insuring, then banks won't lend. And if banks won't lend, then property values are likely to erode and then eventually crater. And if that happens, you're likely to see our economy reverse into one of uh, recession, even depression. And most important of all, if that happens, then that will cut off, that will dry up the finance necessary to fund things like uh, wind farms, solar farms, building electric vehicle factories. In other words, we won't be able to fight climate change yes, anymore. that's the climate change doom loop. In fact, we're looking to do a segment next week specifically on changes in the insurance markets right now. Uh, but, Professor, I know you talk about sustainability as part of the opportunity to avoid the worst uh, urban doom loop scenarios. So how does that intersect with what the caller Mike is talking about? You know, these are important issues. Um, you know, close to home, we have local law 97, right, which basically kicked in, in on January 1st and which uh, essentially is going to impose taxes for buildings that are not environmentally friendly. And so, you know, on the one hand, you could say for office buildings, that's sort of the final nail in the coffin of some of these class B and class C defunct uh, office buildings. Uh, on the other hand, you could say, well, you know, we really need to start get going on on sort of, um, you know, improving the energy efficiency of our built environment. After all, the built environment is responsible for 30% of all greenhouse gas emissions in uh, in the world. So, you know, I think the, the issue of, of property insurance is sort of slightly different, but I agree that's sort of where climate change is going to be felt the first and the most is and most directly. And it's already happening. The cost of commercial real estate property insurance has already doubled last year alone in places like Florida. Homeowner insurance has doubled in the last five years in places like Florida. And, and, and you know, that's Florida. But at the end of the day, a lot of these insurance companies are national. And so, you know, there, there are limits to how much costs they can pass through to their policyholders in Florida. So what happens is the New York policyholders end up bearing some of the cost for that. Right, because they'll basically charge us more to recuperate their 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 lack of being able to charge more in Florida. So this 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 is being felt here, uh, and you know climate change you know is 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 increasing in importance. And if that market you know the caller is right, if that homeowner insurance insurance market were to collapse, it would be a really problematic for values. No, I don't think the government will let that happen. I think in Florida already there's been a, a Florida state government bailout essentially of the homeowner insurance uh, sector. Hmm. And I suspect that we would get something like that nationally if it were to come to it. We're just about out of time. And Mike, thank you for your call from Staten Island. Um, there, there are two, if we had a whole other segment, we could devote the whole thing to these two questions I'm gonna ask you on your way out the door, but do your best. One, how do you think the migrant surge 
affects the doom loop scenario long term. We know there are resettlement costs in the short term um, that are closing libraries and other things, but maybe lots of young migrants seeking a better life here is a good thing for the city's economy in the longer term. And how do you see congestion pricing intersecting with commercial real estate valuations right in the same central business district that, you know, um, is, is that, that the, the congestion pricing tax is trying to keep people out of the central business district, but you're worried that too many people are away already working from home. Yeah, uh, two good questions. I would say, you know, in the migrant crisis, I do think that in the long run, sort of a, 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 an influx of young, competent uh, workers will will sort of benefit the economy. Um, I would say on the congestion pricing, you know, we really needed to find a financial solution for our transit system, which had a deep hole and New York City doesn't function without a good public transit system. And so congestion pricing, if that can be sort of the, the funding for our transit system, you know, I think that's really, really important. Uh, you know, maybe it'll pull some more people in who don't want to commute because the cost of commuting has gone up now with congestion pricing. Maybe they'll come back and, and rent an apartment downtown. You know, maybe it'll... Uh, also allow for, um, you know, more biking and so forth. So I could imagine this being potentially a positive for the quality of life inside New York City. Columbia Business School Professor of Finance and Real Estate, Stan Van Nieuwerberg, most well known for coining the phrase urban doom loop, which I think you can tell from this conversation has its limits and its potential uh, upsides or ways to avoid the worst of the doom loop that he first imagined a couple of years ago when, um, when this scenario first occurred to him. So thank you for having this kind of levels of complexity conversation with me and our callers. I really appreciated it. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. More in a minute. 